So I had a conversation with Jim Myers this morning, and the, all of the things that have been going on in Ukraine have not affected anybody in his ministry, have not affected anything that they're doing. Most of the students live within walking distance of the school, with possibly one exception. They didn't... Um, they didn't shut down the Mashutkas, which are the basic, the, the vans and the uh, uh, small buses. That system didn't get shut down. The s- metro was set, shut down for three days uh, last week. But everybody over there is doing fine. The only thing that they did was that several of the students are actually from Russia with Russian passports, and they just told them to keep a very low profile so that if they were, they, they wouldn't have any reason for the uh, anybody to stop them and question them. So they're doing real well, but uh, Ukraine is really at sort of the bottom. They're at the nadir right now. It is a tough time. I was there a month ago. Not, I came back less than a month ago, four weeks ago. And for the last three or four years, the, the Grivna has been um, has been roughly equivalent 8.2 to the dollar. 8.2, 8.3 fluctuates a decimal point or two. But it was at trading at 9.6 at one point today. And the lowest it's been uh, in the last six years has been 10, which was probably close, which was in 2008, I think. So, and that was for a brief period of time. So the, the Grievna, at least, was fairly stable under Yanukovych. So um, we need to really be in prayer for that that country because it's a great opportunity for the gospel. When there's chaos, people get concerned about their future and get concerned about security. So just pray for a lot of opportunities for Christians uh, to witness uh, witness there. So I think that's that's about it. Was there, I think? Oh yeah, th- there was one other prayer request. Some of you may or may not have been aware of this, but there was a young girl in in. Eager's Church, who's actually the granddaughter of the pastor. The pastor there is Pastor Daniel. He's about 85 years old now. And this was his granddaughter, and she had a meningitis infection and was in the hospital, and they had actually thought she she had died and put a sheet over her. Her father came in one morning, and he started crying, and he picked up the phone to call his mother, and that woke the girl up, and she said, Daddy, I'm, I'm, I'm awake. I'm just sleeping. So um, whether she had actually died or come close to dying and the Lord responded and answered a prayer or what, we don't know. She went through some really difficult times, and the doctors did not expect her to live. They had prepared the family completely for her death, and she went home uh, last Sunday and is in recovery at home and is doing quite well, better than anybody expected. So that's a great answer to prayer. So let's bow our heads together before we get started this evening and have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we continue to pray for these things that we mentioned this evening. Pray for, uh, we're thankful for Darina and for her life. We're thankful for um, the, the opportunities that many of the students have had in going down to Maidan and being involved in, in evangelism and prayer uh, for Ukraine, we pray that this would, the situation there would open itself up to many opportunities to witness and to evangelize and to teach people that the real solution is an internal solution, that there has to be a restoration of, uh, of integrity uh, for a nation to have any measure of stability, and that genuine integrity can only come from your word. Father, we pray for 
us. We pray for the upcoming Trafer Conference, for travel safety for all those, those who are coming, and we pray that you will uh, you know, just provide for all the speakers, keep them healthy as they prepare to come for the conference, and we look forward to that. And we pray for us this evening as we study your word that we can, as we wrap up our study in Acts, that we can come to a great uh, conclusion of our study, remembering what we have learned, going back over, reemphasizing the things that that you've taught us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles this evening to Acts chapter 29. Oh, there's no Acts chapter 29, just testing you. Tonight what I wanted to do, as I said the last lesson I missed last week because of this dreadful cold that's going around, but um, I want to talk about Paul's last years because in Acts 28... We come to the end of the book of Acts, but we don't come to the end of Paul's life. He is still in prison in Rome. And what I want to do tonight is two things. First of all, we're going to go over what the scripture indicates and what history indicates about the remaining years, five or six years in the life of the Apostle Paul. And then we should wrap that up before an hour is up. And then I want to begin to go into an overview and a review of the book, and that will take us through next Tuesday night. I wanted to work that out in terms of timing because I didn't want to start a series on God's plan for the ages right on top of the, or get into my series on dispensationalism right before the conference. So I'm trying, I was trying to work out the timing of that just right so that we can benefit from the conference on dispensationalism and tie that into the series that I'm going to begin uh, with the conclusion of the book of Acts. Okay, so what happens at the end of Acts chapter 28? Well, what we understand, what we believe, is that Paul spent two years in Rome. So the first point here is understanding what happened during the two years in Rome. During the time that he was a prisoner, of course, we know that Luke was with him during this time because of his use of the first-person plural in several passages. Uh, he's also uh, is associated with Epaphras, who is mentioned in Philippians uh, chapter 23. I mean, excuse me, Philemon, uh, Philemon verse 23. Epaphras, uh, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. Philemon was lived in Colossae and was the owner of a slave named Onesimus who had escaped, and Paul met Onesimus in Rome. So when he wrote to Philemon, he also uh, <clears throat> included a greeting from Epaphras who was with him. Epaphras helped also establish the church in Colossae, according to Colossians 1.7 and Colossians uh, 4.12. Epaphras was the pastor there, and he had come to Rome in order to uh, bring a report to him on what was going on in the church at Colossae, and that was the occasion for Paul to write uh, the epistle to the Colossians, and he sent it back by um, Tychicus, who was returning Onesimus to his owner um, Philemon. And there's a good point there because it shows that that there was not a a social activistic uh, element to the gospel message. Is somebody outside or somebody knocking or something? Anyway, thanks, Mark. 
um, there was not a, this social activism, even though slavery was not the best situation and was not an ideal situation, then uh, Paul was not telling Onesimus that he should just, I mean, uh, Philemon, that he should just free Onesimus. He gave him the principles, and it was up to him to make uh, to make those those decisions. So we see first person that, that uh, he spent time with while he was in prison was Epaphras. The second person he spent time with was Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon, and there he spent time teaching him. Here Onesimus had escaped as an unbeliever. He had come to faith in Christ, and so Paul taught him principles related to authority and principles related to uh, the word of God and obedience to your master if you were a slave. And so Onesimus is showing his submission to the word of God, and he is going back to uh, Philemon, who's also a believer. And so Paul then, in the, the epistle to Philemon, is going to deal with issues related to uh, how a Christian should, should uh, master should uh, relate to his slaves. third person that Paul spent time with in those two years in Rome was Epaphroditus, who visited Paul and brought gifts to him from uh, Philippi. During the time that he was in Rome, he became uh, very ill. Paul thought he might die. That's uh, a great example. Paul mentions him in Philippians uh, 4.18 that Paul uh, thought he would die. Paul did not heal him. And that's a great illustration that just because somebody becomes ill doesn't mean that God is going to heal him or there's going to be some sort of miraculous healing. Uh, Epaphroditus uh, did recover, but it was not through a miraculous a miraculous healing. Uh, so when Paul wrote the epistle uh, to the Philippians, he sent it uh, back to Philippi uh, by way of Epaphroditus, and that's mentioned in Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 to 30. Another thing that we learn uh, from reading bits and pieces in the epistles, uh, the prison epistles, is that uh, Paul expected to be released from his imprisonment. We see this in uh, Philippians 1, 19 and 25 to 26. And also that at this time, Demas was still with him. He had several uh, associates who were with him. He mentions Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. Luke was still with him in, in Rome. Now, I want you to pay attention to Demas because in Second Timothy, we learn that Demas has apostatized and he's left the faith. That's one of the problems we have reconciling the content of First and Second Timothy and Titus with the chronology in Luke, there are those who believe that Luke, I mean that that Paul died uh, at the end of this two-year imprisonment at Rome, and that is a big discussion about that uh, among among uh, biblical scholars. And the problem is that that the details that we see in the pastoral epistles don't fit with the chronology in Acts. But that's not a problem for those who come with a theologically liberal mindset. Remember, the assumption of the theological liberal is that the word of God is man's word about God, not God's word to man. And so the mindset of the theological liberal is to come to the scripture and to say, oh, well, see, this is evidence that this isn't the word of God because there are contradictions. Well, there are contradictions because they've approached the text with a false understanding and they haven't sought to a reconciliation of what appears to be 
uh, contradictions. So in Philemon chapter 23, or Philemon uh, verse 24 rather, Demas is still with him. So Paul spent two years in Rome, and then it is believed on the basis of what is said in the uh, in, in the pastoral epistles. There's nothing concrete or overtly said. It is inference because the details there don't fit with the chronology in, in Luke, and also because of evidence from church history that Paul was released and continued to have a ministry for another four or five years before he was again imprisoned in Rome. That time it was a much worse imprisonment and it led to his uh, his martyrdom. So Paul, we believe, was released after two years. The biblical and historical records suggest that uh, that happened and that his accusers never showed up in Rome and so he was released. This would have occurred uh, somewhere around 63 uh, A.D. The evidence that we have historically comes from the church fathers. One of the early church fathers, who's referred to as one of the apostolic fathers, you have the apostles and then the generation immediately following them uh, were referred to as the apostolic fathers. And Clement, who was a pastor in Rome, wrote an epistle to the Corinthians that is known to us as First Clement, it was written somewhere around uh, 95 or 96, about the same time that the Apostle John is writing the last uh, uh, last book of the New Testament uh, revelation. And in chapter 5 of his epistle, he mentions that Paul had been released from Rome. Uh, Eusebius, who writes in the 4th century, uh, says that Paul was released. Now, that could be hearsay. It's not first-hand. It's not based on a first-hand testimony. It could have been based on tradition. So Eusebius is not the strongest evidence, but it clearly shows that the tradition that dominated through the early church was that Paul was was released. And then we know that there's, there are three events specifically mentioned in the life of Paul subsequent to Rome that just don't fit anywhere in the book of Acts. And the first of these is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but he says, Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Now he's writing that in 2 Timothy, which is his last epistle. So this can't refer to his visit to Miletus at the end of his third missionary journey. So this is another visit to Miletus, which doesn't fit anywhere within the uh, within the record of Acts. Uh, also, it indicates that uh, he goes to Corinth again uh, in the um, in the uh, and accompanied by Erastus. So two things come out here: his another visit to Corinth and another visit to Miletus that are not mentioned in um, in the book of Acts. In 2 Timothy 4.13, Paul mentions to Timothy that he left some things behind at Troas. We don't know what brought that about, but he left books, especially the parchments. Many scholars believe that what he meant by the parchments are uh, Scripture, some of his uh, copies of his epistles, perhaps, some of the other epistles. These were probably New Testament documents, but we don't know 
uh, when he was at Troas. So we know he was at Troas at the beginning of the second missionary journey. We know that he went back to Troas again in the third missionary journey, but there's no evidence of him leaving there. This is close to the end when, uh, at the time of Second Timothy when he left something. That just doesn't fit anything that happens in Acts. Remember, in, in Acts, after he's arrested in Jerusalem, he takes the, the uh, ship to Rome. They don't go anywhere near Troas. So if, if, if this is going to be, if we're going to try to fit this into the chronology of Acts, this would be something he left in Troas four or five years earlier. So that doesn't really fit either. He had a very nice cloak apparently, and he wants that brought along with uh, the books and parchments. A third thing that's mentioned is Paul's ministry in Crete. In Titus 1.5, he writes to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete. For Paul to leave him in Crete, Paul would have to be in Crete. When did he go to Crete? See, that's not something we're clear of, and so he's writing to Titus. So this uh, doesn't fit anywhere within the chronology uh, of Luke's uh, of Luke's account in the book of Acts. So these things were clearly... Uh, clearly happened outside of that chronology, and they can't be fit uh, within that chronology. Another reason that uh, we believe that he was released is because the prison situation that he describes uh, later on in Second Timothy is a harsh, much harsher prison situation than the one uh, that we have identified in Luke. In Luke, he's under house arrest, and Luke, uh, I mean, in Acts 28, he does uh, mention that when he's talking to the Jews that came to him, he does mention and show them the chains that are on his hands. So he was chained. He uses that term uh, when he writes to the Philippians that I write while I'm in chains. So he, uh, they did keep him in chains to some degree, but it was house arrest, whereas uh, tradition indicates that he was in the Maritime Dungeon, which was a very horrible place to be uh, just prior to his execution, and that this would have fit with the way in which he describes uh, the harsh conditions of his imprisonment at the end of Second Timothy. In Second Timothy 2.9, he writes, uh, For which I suffer uh, hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. See, he's not found guilty in Acts, and they didn't show up. None of the Gentile rulers ever found him guilty of anything. So he is now imprisoned as a criminal. He says the word of God is not imprisoned. And then he goes on to mention in 4.10 that Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And Crescens had gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, Titus is not in Crete anymore at this time. He's gone to Dalmatia, which you would know as Yugoslavia. Uh, it's across the uh, across the uh, Adriatic there. So this indicates that his imprisonment is quite the nature of his imprisonment is quite different by the end of Second Timothy. Also, he indicates that he is prepared to die. He expects that you don't have. It's very optim, things are very optimistic in Acts very pessimistic in 2 Timothy 4. He writes, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who, um, all who have loved his appearing. So these, this evidence indicates that there was, uh, there are discrepancies, there are different circumstances and situations with people, specifically Demas, and that at the end of Second Timothy he expects uh, death to come uh, fairly soon. So after his two years of imprisonment, there is a period of time when he is traveling. He goes to several places not mentioned in the book of Acts, and then he is arrested. So what happened? What do we believe happened? What took place on what some people call the fourth missionary journey? Um, I would call it the fifth missionary journey because I think he had a missionary journey paid for by Rome when he was on the boat, but it doesn't matter how we count them up. It still comes to the same number of journeys. This is his post-first uh, imprisonment um, journey. And so this would have occurred uh, during a four- to five-year period between 63 and 68. Now, remember what else is going on. In 66, the Jewish revolt uh, breaks out, and that's last um, four years. So if he dies in 68, it's right before Nero dies. Nero dies in um, uh, 69 or 70, and this is why uh, Vespasian is called back, goes back to Rome to assume uh, the position of emperor, and he relinquishes uh, the siege of Jerusalem for a short time. The troops pull back to Caesarea and the uh, Mediterranean coast before the final assault on Jerusalem. It's that pulling back that allowed the Christians who were still in Jerusalem uh, to follow the advice of the Lord and to leave and to get out of Jerusalem. That caused a lot of problems over the subsequent decades between Christians and Jews as well. But it's during this fourth missionary journey also that Paul writes two epistles. He writes First uh, Timothy and Titus. And it's, there are several passages that indicate that he moved around. The first thing we learn is that he went to Colossae. This is indicated in Philemon, verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. He's writing to uh, Philemon. Philemon's in Colossae, so there's, he's expecting to be there. So he says, prepare the room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. He not only went to Colossae, but he went into Macedonia in Greece. This is indicated in two passages, Philemon 2.24 and 1 Timothy 1.3. I mean, not Philemon. I'm getting confused with Philemon, mixing those up. Philippians 2.24, where he writes, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Uh, Philippi, or Philippi, is located in Macedonia. In 1 Timothy 1.3, he wrote, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, that would have been when he visited the Philippians, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So by this period, roughly 64, 65, uh, Timothy is pastoring the congregation in Ephesus. And then we read in uh, 1 Timothy 3.14 that he made another journey to Ephesus, where in 1 Timothy 3.14, so these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So apparently he had gone 
from Colossae perhaps to um, uh, Macedonia, and now he's traveling back to Ephesus where he will visit uh, Timothy again. From there, perhaps he finally made it to Spain. His desire to go to Spain is mentioned in Romans chapter 15, uh, verses 24 through 28, where we read, Whenever I journey to Spain, so that was his hope, his desire at the end of his life to go beyond Rome. And there's also a passage in Clement that he went to the limits and the limits wouldn't be Rome because that's the capital of the Roman Empire. It would indicate something beyond that, which, uh, though it's not stated, it would make sense that he had made it to Spain. So whenever I journey to Spain, uh, I shall come to you, for I hope to see you on my journey. So this would be, he would indicate he was traveling back through Rome. I see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if, I, if, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. So this, this was written when he wrote Romans, so it's before his um, first captivity. The mention of the journey there, hoping to see you on the journey, would have been when he was in Rome and, and Acts. But it, the point here is it's expressing his desire to go on to Spain and go... Um, go beyond there, perhaps, to Gaul. There are some traditions that Paul made it up into what we now call France, also uh, some traditions that he made it to Britain. There's no evidence that he made it to either location. That's just tradition. So on my scale of, of, of uh, certainty in terms of one through four, four being a bedrock certainty and one being just, just uh, pure tradition with no foundation whatsoever, that would be a one. Uh, and there's no evidence whatsoever he made it to those uh, to those locations. And then in uh, Titus uh, one five he mentions, uh, for this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order things that are lacking. So he visited Crete as well on this journey. Uh, also uh, going to, as I mentioned earlier, he went to Corinth uh, and to Miletus. And he also, at this point, went to Troas. So there were a number of places that he went. And then in Titus 3.12, he mentions to Titus, when I send Artemis to you, Artichicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, which is located up on the uh, Aegean, I mean, up on the um, uh, Adriatic for I've decided to spend the winter there. So he did a lot of traveling. So the chronology would seem to be like this. In 63, he's, re he's released from imprisonment, from the first imprisonment. From there, he went to Philippi and Colossae, or perhaps the other way around. And he probably went to Spain uh, from there. Later in 66, he went to Ephesus in Macedonia and Ephesus again. In 67, he wrote 1 Timothy and came to Miletus and to Corinth. And from there, he wrote this epistle to Titus and went to Nicopolis. So that seems to be the general order of events. Following that, he was arrested. He is brought to Rome where he faced trial. It is at this time that Rome burned and a, a large section of the city burned, and Nero needed someone to pin the blame on, so he blamed the Christians, and it was during this time the Christians were 
uh, horribly uh, persecuted, thrown to the wild beasts in the Colosseum, uh, things of that nature. And it was at this time that both Paul and Peter uh, were, were martyred. Paul was not martyred by crucifixion as Peter was. Peter was crucified, but he didn't think he was worthy to be crucified like our Lord, so he uh, insisted on being crucified upside down according to tradition, which is probably as best we have. And then Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, could not be crucified, so he was beheaded. And this occurred uh, sometime in late 66 or in 67. And that was how he went to be with the Lord. Now, evidence that we have of this and of his execution comes in a number of different writers. Uh, Clement (coughs) said that he was beheaded by Emperor Nero. He wrote, uh, Clement wrote about 30 years after Paul's martyrdom in 95 to 96. A second line of evidence comes from Dionysius of Corinth, who wrote about a hundred years later, actually about 80 years later, in AD 170, mentioned that Paul was martyred in Rome. Then uh, about 20 years after Dionysius, Tertullian uh, wrote that Paul was beheaded in Rome. A fourth writer coming up about at the beginning of the third century by the name of Gaius of Rome uh, stated that Paul was beheaded on the Ostian Way in Rome. And then later, uh, not long after Gaius, Origen wrote in 325 that Paul was martyred under Nero. And then our final source, who is somewhat distant uh, distant from uh, the events, is Eusebius, who wrote about the same time as Origen in his ecclesiastical history of the church, wrote that Paul was uh, uh, martyred under Nero. So this pretty much pinpoints the time in which uh, Paul was martyred. So that brings us to a conclusion of Acts as well as the Apostle Paul. And I want to take some time to review us on the book of Acts and just to go back over these 28 chapters and think it through a little bit in terms of the lessons that we have learned. Paul's primary purpose in writing, remember, let's go back to Acts chapter 1, is he is writing to Theophilus, who is a uh, Gentile, uh, probably a Greek, if that is a personal name rather than a title. Some people think it's a title, as I pointed out, because its meaning is uh, is a compound word, theos, from God, and uh, phileo, the verb, or uh, philos, for, for, um, for love, uh, God lover. So it could have been just a, uh, a nickname for him, but uh, most people think it was his personal name. And he wrote in Acts 1.1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. So he writes book 1, which is the Gospel of Luke, and then book 2, which is the Acts of the Apostles, which is a poor name for it historically. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. His purpose in writing was to give, um, is to give Theophilus an orderly account of the birth and the growth of the early church, as well as to establish him as a young believer in his understanding of Christianity. So that is Paul's, I mean, Luke's purpose. Uh, this is uh, 
we'll see this is structured around Acts 1.8, Jesus' parting command to the disciples, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So the message of the book, the purpose is to present this to Theophilus, but the message of the book is to explain the birth and the expansion of the church, that it doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2, and that its expansion cannot be attributed to human effort or human talent, but is the result of the work of God the Holy Spirit. And so throughout the book, Paul gives these, I mean, I keep saying Paul, Luke gives these various progress reports on how the church is growing and how the church is expanding. And he is uh, tracking the uh, expansion of the church as well. So that helps us understand its primary purpose, uh, primary message and primary purpose. So there are uh, seven uh, sub-purposes that are accomplished by Luke in writing this. Uh, The first, which relates to uh, his initial message to Theophilus, is that he's writing to establish Theophilus in the faith. He wants Theophilus to understand about the foundation of the church and to give him a foundation for a solid theology of the church. The word we use for that is ecclesiology, the theology related to the teaching of the church. We have our Chafer Conference coming up in two weeks where we're looking at dispensationalism, and one of the uh, one of the key elements in dispensationalism is the distinction between Israel and the church. So it may uh, surprise some of you to realize that in the study of theology, dispensationalism is usually classified under ecclesiology because it's dealing with God's plan and purposes for the church as distinct as distinct from Israel. So Luke writes to explain to Theophilus how the church is born, the the primary dynamic in the church, which is God the Holy Spirit, and how God the Holy Spirit uh, expanded the church. That's the second point. Luke wrote to explain the miraculous expansion of the church under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It's not something that just happened. It is something that is directed by uh, God the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, though, that Luke, in the details that he includes, does not talk about the expansion of the church into Africa. He does not talk about the expansion of the church east into Babylonia, uh, Persia, or the Parthian Empire at that time. Uh, representatives of those areas are mentioned in the text, but the focus is on its expansion uh, west and north. And why would that be? Think about that a minute. Why would that be? It goes back to the prophecy of Noah in Genesis chapter 9 that Shem would dwell in the tents of Japheth, not the Hamites, so that the two primary uh, ethnic groups that are going to dominate uh, history of mankind are going to be uh, the descendants of Shem, which focuses and is eventually nar- or which is focused and narrowed down to uh, Israel and the Japhethites, which would include Indo-European people. It would include the Iranians because they are Persians and not Arabs, and it would include Slavic people. It would include uh, the, the Gauls. It would include the Latins, the Greeks, and the Scandinavians, the Brits, the Celts, uh, all of the groups that dominated uh, Europe. So this is the area where Paul heads. That's part of fulfillment 
uh, biblical uh, biblical prophecy. The third thing that is that is in Paul, uh, Luke's mind in writing this is to show the numerical expansion of the church. And the church grows rapidly, and there are a number of pl- uh, places where he mentions this. You can see those on the screen: Acts two forty seven, Acts six seven, Acts nine thirty one, Acts twelve twenty four, Acts sixteen five, Acts nineteen twenty and Acts 28, 30 to 31. There are also some smaller areas where he gives very short um, progress reports, but those are the, the large ones that he gives in order to teach about the expansion of the church. For example, the fact that 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost, and then in Acts chapter 3, uh, 5,000 men are saved, or Acts chapter 4, rather, Acts 4, 4, uh, 5,000 men are, are added to the church. Fourth purpose that Paul has is to validate Paul's ministry as an apostle, to show that Paul is personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and given a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so he's, he demonstrates that. And one of the ways he does this is by uh, a comparison of Paul's ministry with Peter's ministry. Peter is clearly the the lead apostle starting in Acts chapter 2, he begins to fade out by the time we get to Acts 10, 11, and 12. But initially, Peter is the lead apostle in the church. And in Peter's life now, to get this on the screen, I had to scrunch it down a little bit, so that's going to be hard for some of you to see it. Peter heals a lame man from birth in chapter 3, 1 through 11. Paul heals a lame man from birth uh, in chapter 14, 8 to 18. Peter heals people by his shadow in Acts 3, 15 to 16. Paul heals people by his handkerchiefs. They just touched his handkerchief, and uh, they were healed in Acts 19, 11, and 12. Peter, uh, Peter's success was a cause for Jewish jealousy, in Acts 15, I mean Acts 5:17, for Paul, his success was also a cause of Jewish jealousy in uh, Acts 13:45. Peter confronted Simon, who was a sorcerer, uh, in uh, Acts 8:9 to 24. Paul confronted uh, Bar Jesus, who was a sorcerer, in Acts 13:6 to 11. Peter raised Tabitha, also known as Dorcas, to life in Acts 9:36 to 41. Peter, I mean, Paul raised Eutychus back to life. Remember, Eutychus was the sleepy, the sleepy disciple who's sitting up in the window and falls out because Paul was teaching Bible class for five or six hours. That I know some of you never fell asleep in Bible class. So Paul uh, raised Eutychus back to life in chapter 20, verses 9 through 12. Peter jailed, was jailed and freed miraculously by God in Acts 12, 3 through 19. And Paul was also jailed and freed miraculously by God in Acts 16, 25 to 34. And so by looking at this comparison, what Luke is bringing out is that the same power that worked through Peter also worked through Paul. The same divine power that authenticated Peter's ministry is also authenticating Paul's ministry, that Paul has the same authority as the original disciples, even though he was saved, as he said, out of time. He was not saved at the same time 
as the others. So Paul's ministry needed uh, some additional verification. A fifth thing we see in terms of Luke accomplishing his purposes is that he wrote to explain to Roman authorities that Christianity was not a threat to the empire. He shows in the text, it's subtle, but he's showing that Christianity is not a competitor for the uh, imperial throne, that the trouble that was caused in in the colonies, as it were, like in Philippi and Thessaloniki and other places, was because of unbelieving Jews who were antagonistic to the Christians. And that's mentioned in a number of passages in Acts, which I put up there on the slide. So there are a few instances where the Gentiles persecuted Paul, for example, in Philippi. But they did this for usually because there, there was a loss of, of income. Uh, this happened in Philippi. It also happened in Ephesus, if you remember, when the uh, silversmiths were losing their trade because they were making the little idols, silver idols of Diana, the many-breasted goddess. So uh, Luke is taking pains to show that uh, the authorities routinely vindicated Paul. Whenever he was taken before a court of Gentiles, they could not find any any legitimate charge against him. But the Jews were consistently reacting to him and hostile, uh, hostile to him. Six, Luke also contrasts the Gentile reception of the gospel with Jewish rejection. The Gentiles respond. Paul always went to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue first, and he had a, uh, a fairly lengthy time in, in Ephesus where he explained the gospel for about three months and uh, before they finally uh, got upset with him and kicked him out. Other places it didn't last but two or three weeks before the Jews kicked him out. And then he went to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles responded. So Luke is showing that there is a dispensational shift, a transition that's taking place uh, during this time. Also, uh, I misnumbered as I was doing this. Um, Under point number seven, or I just skipped one, under point number seven, Luke wanted to show that although the church had its roots in Judaism and in the Old Testament, it was distinct from Judaism. It had its roots in Judaism. It had its roots in the Old Testament, but it was distinct. There is a distinction now between God's plan for the church, which is universal, taken from Gentiles, where there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile, There's a distinction between the church and Israel. That's the seventh point. No slide on that. Eighth point, Luke shows that the gospel is for all people. There's a universality to the gospel. It's for all nations, all people, all tongues, all cultures, and all strata of society. It is not just for the rich or the powerful or the educated or the elite. It is for everyone. And so uh, Luke is demonstrating the power of the gospel. That brings us to the last thing I want to touch on today, which is, or this morning, or evening rather, I'm really confused tonight, um, is to look at the um, unique characteristics in Acts, unique things in Acts. First of all, Acts describes numerous first-time events. 
It's a dispensational shift, as we're going to see. It's the beginning of a whole new era in God's plan and purposes for man. So there are a number of things that happen that are first. For example, in Acts chapter 2, we have, the for the first time, the descent of God the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. First time in history that those ministries ever occurred. Second thing that happens in Acts 2 is that the disciples speak in tongues. The disciples speak in languages, languages they never learned before. This is the first time this has ever occurred, and there's a purpose. Uh, Peter ties that to Joel chapter 2, showing that this kind of thing is what the Holy Spirit performs. So there's this emphasis from the very beginning upon God the Holy Spirit. You also have a large number of conversions. You never go. Th- when did you see a large number of conversions in First Samuel, or Isaiah, or Daniel, or Malachi? You never see a large number of conversions in the Old Testament. You you come to Acts chapter uh, two, and in Acts two forty one, there's three thousand who are saved as a result of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts chapter 4, there's 5,000 males who are saved. So there could have been as many as 12, 15, or 20,000 saved if you would include those who were saved uh, in, their, in their families. In Acts chapter 5, we have the death of Ananias and Sapphira under divine discipline, the sin unto death, because they've lied against God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we also see the first selection of leadership a non-apostolic leadership in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 7, we see the martyrdom of Stephen, who as he is about to die physically, the heavens open, and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven ready to receive him. We don't see anything quite like that anywhere else in Scripture. We see um, uh, the conversion of the Samaritans, as a result of miracles that are performed uh, there as well as the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter um, Acts chapter 8. And then in Acts chapter 9, we are 10, we see the Apostle Paul chosen. Uh, this is in Acts, um, Acts, excuse me, Acts 11, 26, uh, where the Apostle Paul and Barnabas are chosen for the first missionary journey. Never had missionary go out from Israel in the Old Testament. So this is a first. There's a first identification of Christians in Acts 12.2. The followers of Jesus are now identified as Christians. So that's a first in, um, in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. The first missionary journeys take place as Paul and Barnabas are sent out. So all of these are distinctive events uh, unique to history and unique to the book of Acts. Second thing, we spent quite a bit of time on this. Very important to understand that the book of Acts is transitional in nature. Transitional in nature. It is showing a shift from one dispensation to another. It's showing how uh, under this new dispensation there are going to be new characteristics and God is going to be accomplishing uh, some new things. We also see this emphasis under point number three on the Holy Spirit. Luke emphasizes the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and mentions the Holy Spirit over 50 times in the book of Acts. That tells us just on the basis of of emphasis that this is extremely important. He also emphasizes prayer. Look at all these passages 
where prayer is mentioned in the book of Acts. This is a central theme in Acts for Luke. It is important for believers to pray and to be dependent upon God and express that through prayer. Fifth thing we see is that Acts represents the mission of the church following the Great Commission when Jesus said that they were to go into all the world uh, baptizing in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and teaching believers to uh, to obey him in everything. So Acts emphasizes the mission of the church to evangelize the lost and to instruct all people in the gospel and the word of God. Acts also emphasizes that the purpose of the church is instructional. There are sermons that teach uh, evangelism, but they also teach other doctrinal points, and there are other sermons that also teach uh, other doctrinal points. There are 23 sermons in Acts, emphasizing the fact that it is through the oral communication of the word that God is teaching and training believers in the church age. The seventh thing that we see is an emphasis on miracles. This goes along with the apostolic focus of Acts because miracles were part of the validation of the of the apostles. And this is mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, that these are the signs of the apostles. So there were various miracles wrought by uh, Peter, and there were those that were performed by Paul, and others that were also miracles of discipline or divine judgment, as well as healing miracles. All this is to demonstrate that the apostles were validated by by God. Also, we see as part of the transitional nature that there were numerous non-normative receptions of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit shows up in Acts 1 for the Jews, He shows up in Acts 8 for the Samaritans. He comes again in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles and again in Acts chapter 19 for the disciples of John the Baptist representing Old Testament believers. So those elements indicate that that there's one thing that each has in common and that is the presence of an apostle indicating the the unity of the church is based on apostolic authority. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. A ninth thing about the book of Acts is that it furnishes the background for us. It gives us background, historical background and context for understanding the Pauline epistles in the New Testament. We learned where he went. We learned something about the churches and the problems, the people, that uh, that Paul faced in those locations, and that so that gives us a a historical and cultural context for understanding the Pauline epistles. And tenth, uh, Acts then is the only book that gives us the history of the early church. There's no other book that covers this material, so it provides a historical uh, transition from the death of Christ and the uh, resurrection of Christ to the end of the first century and seeing the expansion of the church till the close of the canon uh, of Scripture. Eleventh, uh, Acts shows a shift from Israel to the church, that God's purpose now is directed to the church, but it will be restored to Israel uh, in the future after the, tribu- or after the rapture of the church. The shift goes back to Israel. And then last, we've seen the emphasis on the kingdom of God, Acts chapter 1, 
uh, Jesus is teaching the disciples about the kingdom of God. The last thing we hear Paul teaching the Jewish leaders about in Acts 28 is the kingdom of God. And it's the same kingdom all the way through. It's a future, literal, millennial, messianic reign of Christ upon the earth. And so these are just some of the things that make Acts a distinct and unique book. Next time we'll come back and we'll do a review of the uh, argument of the book, which simply means, uh, as we said, Luke has a purpose in writing Acts, and that purpose is to demonstrate the work of God the Holy Spirit in giving birth to the church and expanding it uh, through most of the first century. He doesn't go all the way to the end. He just goes to about 62 or 63 but we'll come back next time and we'll summarize the book, do a one last flyover showing how Luke accomplishes his purposes and the implications of that in terms of our own understanding of God's plan for history and our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that what we're doing here in church is part of a tradition that began almost 2,000 years ago that just as God the Holy Spirit uh, led in the establishment of the church and led the, through the apostles and others th- through the uh, uh, first century and the establishment of churches, that that didn't end in the first century but continues, and we're part of that continuous flow through history as you are building the body of Christ and preparing the body of Christ, which is also the bride of Christ, for our uh, future uh, wedding with Christ, which occurs in the heavenlies, in preparation for the establishment of the kingdom. Father, we pray that we would be impressed by God the Holy Spirit with what we've learned and that we can see our place in this tremendous drama that continues through history and that we may participate in that as we go out, as we explain the gospel to others, and as we are also involved in proclaiming the truths of your word to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.